1: Hey you guys, this is Haley, Associate Producer at the Webby Awards. Going into this new year, do you have any project goals or cool work you've accomplished that you would love to show off, such as creative online games, unique websites, that really nice TikTok account, or that Substack newsletter you cannot stop reading? At a time like this, it's so easy to think what you would look like in Web 3.0. So I'm sure you or a friend are great at making work on today's internet. If so, I'm here to tell you that there is still a bit more time to enter your work into the 26th Annual Webby Awards, where it'll be seen from the most talented people on the internet. The extended entry deadline is Friday, February 11th. This year, we have a ton of new ways to honor your work this year, including new categories for email newsletters, podcast, social, and even installation experience. Visit webbyawards.com to learn more.
0: From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast.
2: Don't fear tackling real shit. Guts, heart, passion, drive, Wi-Fi. Yeah! Create, change like a girl. Cheers.
1: Women, look what we
2: did!
0: Hey there, and welcome back to the Webby Podcast. My guest for today is carving out a space to tell stories through the lens of intersectional feminism. Cindy Levy is a journalist, advocate, and co-founder of The Meteor, a media collective whose goal is to advance the freedom and dignity of all women. While in recent years we've seen a wave of interest and support of feminist causes and news, the Women's March and the Say Her Name movement, for example, when we get away from the big moments, feminist issues are often relegated to the margins. So Cindy and her colleagues at the Meteor decided to create a company that changes that. And they produced a lot of very important work, including the Undistracted with Brittany PacNet podcast, to their most recent tour de force, the Because of Anita Hill podcast. Cindy and I covered a lot of ground during our conversation. We start off in Gloria Steinem's living room.
2: The Meteor is a media company that's focused on creating work across all different kinds of platforms that has something to do with gender equity. I mean, the, the conversation that a bunch of us were having about two years ago when we were sitting around kind of, you know, cross-legged on living room floors talking about trying to invent something new was around the fact that we're in the middle of you know, this this big wave of awareness and interest in what I would think of as kind of modern feminist issues. And although they're covered in lots of different places, often very, very well, they're usually the kinds of things that are squeezed in around the edges. And so we were having the conversation of, well, what if you just started a company where the point was to do that? Um, So, you know, one of the questions we were asking ourselves is like, well, what if Ms. Magazine was invented in, you know, in 2021, or at this point, it was sort of late 2019, just pre-pandemic. And, you know, it probably wouldn't be a magazine, probably wouldn't even be a website. and, And what would it be? And we decided that we just wanted it to be a home for great storytelling that kind of grew from... What you might might call a feminist perspective although the way different people define that really you know really varies and even varied among those of us sitting there in that room at the time um and you know and, and that was the that was the idea uh we had one of our our first editorial ideas actually in Gloria Steinem's living room which was really fun because there have been a lot of great meetings there before us and um I I remember that there's this one sort of great big armchair in her living room and and she didn't want to sit in it. It was like clearly the seat of honor. And we kept saying like, Gloria, you're Gloria Stein. I'm like, you got to. So
0: There's st- just an empty chair sitting there and <laughs> she's in the room on the floor. <laughs>
2: she, Yeah, she insisted on sitting ah. on the arm of the armchair. Well, you know, whoever was leading that part of the meeting took turns in the chair, which like tells you a lot about okay. about her. But anyway, so that that was the original idea.
0: And what about the collective?
2: There's a group of about 30 journalists and filmmakers and some artists and some activists who are all involved in growing this project. And so different folks are involved, you know, to different extents and in different ways, some sort of loosely and in an advisory capacity and, you know, and others really, you know, involved in a, a much more, um, you know, kind of detailed uh, and day-to-day way. And. One of the wonderful things about our sort of first year of being up and running is that different members of the collective have been able to produce different projects kind of under the meteor shingle. So Rebecca Carroll, the memoirist who was a when she joined, was a podcaster at WNYC, has produced two um, shows with the media are uh, called In Love and Struggle, both in partnership with Audible. One is a live show just like five minutes before the pandemic. It's a really wonderful moment while it lasted. And and then the other, uh, an audio special. And um, the podcast that we've just done um, because of Anita, which was focused on the 30th anniversary of the Clarence Thomas hearings, um, was co Produced by uh, myself in conjunction with Salamisha Tillett, another Meteor Collective member, and Jenna Weiss-Berman, also a Meteor Collective member who runs Pineapple Street Studios.
0: You're out there for about a year now. Is your day-to-day job the job of running a company, though, or no? Or is it
2: different? Um, it is the job of running a company it, okay. it, in in all of the incredible glamour that that involves when you're, yes. you know, when you're running a startup, which is like, you know, yes. literally, you know, trying to fill out cells on an Excel spreadsheet at the same time as you're pitching a sponsor at the same time as you're, you know, writing an Instagram caption.
0: You'll call them the heady days one day.
2: <laughs> yeah, I got to work on my origin story. <laughs>
0: Something else that I noted and we were sort of talking about here is that you also want to have a focus on intersectional feminism. Mm -hmm. And I've heard you say before that, you know, that that's a word that sometimes people don't really, you know, it's sort of like one of these words that gets tossed around and sometimes people don't necessarily understand the meaning of Mm -hmm. it. Or maybe they do, but then it sort of gets tossed around. It's you, you use so much, but. I think it's good to revisit, I think, what it what it means, at least what it means to you and what it means to the, me- the media, because I, I think it should be a, a bit of a focus of our conversation. Today.
2: Yeah. I mean, intersectional feminism, yeah, is the kind of, you know, kind of phrase that does get thrown around a lot. And I mean, that's a, not necessarily a bad thing. It's a good thing that people understand it more than, you know, they did 20 years ago, certainly more than I did 20 years ago by the way if you're if you really want to understand intersectional feminism which was uh, of course um, coined by Professor Kimberly Crenshaw there's a really wonderful section of the podcast that uh, that we've just produced because of Anita where Professor Crenshaw who was actually an early member of Anita Hill's legal team in 1991 at the time of her testimony explains how a failure to understand Anita Hill from an intersectional perspective meaning to understand that she you know was both a woman and a black person and the failure to understand that she had every much a, a right every bit as much a right to her black identity as Clarence Thomas did the failure to understand that really allowed Clarence Thomas to take control of the narrative and all of his republican supporters to take control of the narrative and sort of strip Professor Hill of any kind of agency at the time. Anyway, it's it it's really a beautiful and phenomenal kind of um, story that she tells in in the you know in this podcast episode. Um, but I think you know one of the things that is very clear about, you know, women's media in general. And I certainly, you know, count myself as somebody who like having been the editor of various women's magazines for a you know long chunk of my career am responsible for, you know, for this, like, it was most women's media was dominated by and shaped by white women. And then women of color, or people of color were kind of forced to fit into that model. So even when they you know, were hired or were promoted. You know, it was often for sort of their success in absorbing the dominant narrative, as opposed to you know really bringing their full selves. Being encouraged to bring their their full selves to media, and that's you know unfortunately I think still the case for a, you know a lot of people's experience of of media, and the media is you know the poorer for it. Um, so yeah, it was it was important to us to really, you know, not not have to invent those things after the fact, which I think is so difficult, but to really, you know, jump in with that perspective. Um, although it, it's interesting, one of the phrases that Rebecca Carroll used in one of our first meetings has really stuck with me, which she said, you know, she said, like, we don't want to be demanding accountability as much as we want to be embodying account- accountability. Like, you know, rather than sort of have to prove our bona fides by going around wrapping other people on the knuckles, not that that isn't sometimes deserved and not that, you know, uh, the meteor won't do that on occasion. We really want to try to actually, you know, first just embody what we're what we're trying to create.
0: So a couple of things I want to come back to there. We will... Um the the insight from kimberly crenshaw in the because of anita hill that was really Mm -hmm. interesting to me i want to leave that for one second Mm -hmm. because i do want to talk about that podcast a little bit more deeply Um, but just while we're on this this topic sort of more broadly about intersectional feminism um you know as a journalist what what are the have you seen the internet change the way gender equality issues are discussed and amplified and like what are the so to talk about some of the ways that you feel like are positive and negative and how the media might you know accentuate the positive and undo the negative
2: i mean really big picture you know the the really positive things that have happened you know are that it's, accessibility is everything right and and you know it is very easy in a wonderful way for anyone to have a voice so you know Clearly, like the age of the gatekeeper is never going to come back. And that's a, you know, and that's a good thing. And I think what a lot of folks have learned about intersectional feminism, they've learned because, you know, the mic no longer has to be granted to somebody by, you know, by a gatekeeper on high, but because, you know, people everywhere are saying like, hey, heads up what, what you just wrote. What I'm reading here, what I'm watching here does not align with my experience and, you know, and and here's how. So that's a great thing. And I think, you know, that's not just about the world of social media. That's sort of is a, you know, that's a a long process that began with the rise of like, remember them bloggers, you know, in the, you know, in the OOs and then certainly has been amplified through the, you know, through the days of social media the negatives are almost, you know, too obvious, and, and also too many for us to be able to name on this, you know, name on this podcast. I mean, you know, it it can be a vicious culture out there for any woman, and especially a woman of color, and especially a black woman who, you know, dares to speak her opinion. I think, you know, I see it, the women in our, collective the people in our collective especially those you know especially black women especially queer women um you know the the level of sort of venom that they have to put up with every time they open their laptop is just you know it, it's appalling and the idea that we've now kind of come to think that that's just like that's part of the bargain you make if you're a woman with an opinion that's part of the bargain you make if like you want to have the mic and it's not a reasonable expectation. And it certainly, you know, it it drives a lot of people out of, you know, not just journalism, but the the media more broadly.
0: You know, you could say that just like, let's just pick on social media for a second, right? Um, You could say it's dehumanizing in a way. The vitriol and the language and the words that you see there don't necessarily match the same type of language you see in other common physical spaces with people around. Now, that's not to say people aren't mean to people in real life and stuff, but it's much, much worse. There's something about the medium that just separates people from their humanity and allows them to act like that.
2: No, I would just say, like, I don't know that you can really divide sort of the real world, the, you know, IRL world from the virtual world like that, because I think as we've seen, like, you know if any of us were awake on January 6th, like you can see that, you know, the protections afforded and the sort of, you know, emboldenedness that anonymity has afforded people, like that's very much present in the real physical realm, too. So that's part of what's so, you know, scary about it.
0: Yeah. I mean, do you think that social media is dehumanizing in some way?
2: I think anonymity is, you know, is dehumanizing and, you know, and and can be. Yeah, I, you know, like, is all social media forever and ever dehumanizing? Probably not. Right. Is the way it lives in our culture at this moment dehumanizing? You know, I think so. I mean, of course, there's, you know, yeah. there's wonderful things about it, too. I mean, the, you know, great social movements of the last, you know, eight to ten years, Black Lives Matter and Me Too, have both grown on social media.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I, I sort of bring that up and I just sort of want to talk about some non-Internet things because... um you know i think the the idea around intersectional feminism is not just is not limited to media and it's like something that companies and organizations and culture at large needs to understand and adopt and sort of adapt and use as a framework where do you where do you think we are with that
2: I mean, I think we're right at the very beginning, you know, as with so many social movements, as with like things like critical race theory, where there seems to suddenly be this like widespread perception that like, oh, my gosh, things have, you know, swung so far in the opposite direction. And we've gone too far when actually, you know, we're one one thousandth probably of the way we need to go. You know, certainly with Issues around, you know, gender equity, like with issues around racial justice, I think sometimes, you know, there's a, a real kind of like palpable desire among people for whom this is uncomfortable, you know, whether that's, you know, whether that's white people or men or, you know, whoever has the power, there's just a palpable desire for like, oh my God, let it be over already you know, and I think right now, I mean, one of the things that we heard a lot in the folks we talked to for Because of Anita is that there is this like Me Too fatigue. And, you know, and certainly the same exists if you're talking about, you know, intersectional feminism or the, you know, long and ongoing work for racial justice. It's just that like people, a lot of people want it to be over. And, it, it, you know, and it really is just kind of getting started.
0: And it's a it's a great segue because it's something I think you you bring up in the podcast because of Anita Hill in general is that there's actually been all these other moments like this in the past where maybe no moments are the same, but there have been other big culminating moments where it felt like okay, now is the time that this thing is going to get solved, and sometimes some things change but lots of things don't change and i think that's part i think it's part of mm-hmm. the point of the podcast too right is to go back and look at like what it felt like and what people thought would happen but what really did happen and where where are we today
2: yeah i mean it, it like that was actually one of the you know one of the main questions we kind of wanted to take on in the podcast i mean i'm old enough that i remember you know in real time as like a you know sentient human watching the anita Hill testimony, by the way, one of the things that we made a vow of when we were making the podcast is that we're not going to h- call it the Anita Hill hearings, even though that's what everybody calls it colloquially, because he was the one who was there for a job interview. They were the Clarence Thomas hearings, right. but she right. delivered testimony. Right. Anyway, I remember watching that testimony in real time, and I kind of remember, because I was like a budding feminist, I, you know, there was a lot of energy after that among women, right? People were incensed at what they saw. There were these phrases that were going around women were saying to men, you know, you just don't get it. There was this whole group of women who decided to run for Congress in what then was called the year of the woman. And, you know, it, it, like you would have thought that it was gonna, it was gonna be this sort of feminist uprising that would solve all the problems, you know, in all the industries. And of course, not only didn't it, but so even though sexual harassment became something that was sort of talked about as an aspect of women's experience, and it was widely understood to, like, be a bad thing. Even so, you know, it took until 2017 and the hashtag Me Too moment for all these women to start coming forward about their experiences. And suddenly you see that, like, not only have we not gone miles since 1991, maybe we haven't even gone an inch. And so, you know, I think part of what we were interested in looking at is, you know, what did change as a result of not just her testimony, but the public awareness and anger and momentum that came after it. And what didn't change, you know, companies didn't come up with effective systems to keep sexual harassment for happening, even though this was like something that they all said they were going to do in 1991. And not only did rates of sexual abuse and violence not go down, you know, it appears in a lot of areas that they've actually, you know, they've actually gone up. And so although some things got better, a lot of really fundamental things didn't. And you kind of have to look into to why.
0: Well so tell me tell me a little bit about the making of Because of Anita Hill. And you know, I, I feel tell me if I'm wrong, but you have a long history in media. Um you've been a storyteller and a journalist for a very long time. Um you know you would say that you're an expert at that i would say and but this form of podcasting while well, has been around for a long time um you know here at the webbies we've been honoring podcasts for a long time but i can tell you if you look back the quality and the evolution of the work over the last like three or four years, we're talking Mm -hmm. the level of innovation and quality is just, is just dramatically improving every year. And so just tell me about Mm -hmm. what that was like for you as somebody who has like this sort of vast experience in it, but essentially kind of, you know, also doing something that's maybe it wasn't totally new to you, but it's a, it's, you know, having this type of an audience over this type of topic is a newish thing.
2: Oh yeah, no, it was totally new. It was really new to me. And I had, I had hosted a podcast before, um, I hosted, could not be farther um, away from this, but was really fun. And, you know, it was a really fun podcast to to host. I hosted the Barney's podcast um, before Barney's.
0: Rest in peace. May, may it rest in peace.
2: Went out of went out of business. Yes, let's have a have a moment of fashion silence for for Barney's. Um, anyway, I hosted that, which was a straight up interview show, and was very sort of similar in how it was produced to how I you know was used to producing a you know a live interview with someone on stage at a magazine event, or even an interview that I would conduct for you know for print or digital publication and this was a very different process because even though you know the interviews themselves were you know had that sense of looseness when we were actually recording the show itself was so meticulously put together and produced we had the most amazing team at pineapple street um, and it was a mostly female, completely multiracial team of people who were so committed to and passionate about this subject and the interviews that we were doing. And first of all, it's just like, an amazing pleasure, I think, for anybody, probably in any field to like work with people who are incredibly good at what they do, especially when it's not what you do. (laughs) And, you know, just to sort of hear them think and talk about pieces of audio and how those fit together, you know, at the beginning of at the beginning of episode one, there's about a, you know, 15 to 20 minute opening where Salamisha and I really um, kind of explain what exactly happened in 1991. Because of course, half of the audience for this podcast wasn't alive then and may kind of vaguely know who Anita Hill is, but might not know more than that. And, you know, and we really walked through, you know, a huge amount of sort of found audio and constructed this story. And when I say we, I mean very much the, you know, the producers that was, you know, Cat Aaron and Leila Day and Justine Daum and Jenna Weiss-Berman, who really, put that together and made it, you know, and and made it shine. And that was like, it's just a great, I think, thrill and privilege to work with people who are, you know, at the top of their game. It
0: also feels, it also just feels like there's a, Mm -hmm. there's like a new media space for, you know, sort of like a long form intellectual type journalism where, you know, where it doesn't just have to be on television in like a 20 minute Mm -hmm. magazine thing to sort of become big or get like pop culture, you know, become popular. It's just, I feel like the accessibility of the the audio, you know, that is really sort of opening up a bigger door for some of these like more thoughtful pieces of journalism.
2: Yeah. Thinking specifically about episode three of this podcast, which was uh, an hour long um, when it was published, hour long conversation between Anita Hill and um, Christine Blasey Ford. And we recorded that. It was about a a two-and-a-half-hour recording session um, on an incredibly hot August afternoon. We were in four different studios. Um, You know, each one of us is with producers in four different cities. And the two of them had this, you know, incredibly personal, really heartfelt, meaningful conversation about their shared experiences, which is, of course, like, you know, these are two women who testified about you know some of the most traumatic events of their life and by the way the testimony then for each of them goes on to be you know an equally traumatic event in in their life that sort of fact of appearing before the country like this and it's and it's aftermath and so they're you know two people who can understand each other better than than anyone and to hear them kind of you know talking You know, first kind of talking to the world, but then like really as the conversation went on, just talking to each other about what they'd gone through. Like it just was, you know, I'm sure that there are, you know, video versions of conversations like that, you know, that could feel just as powerful. But there was something just about, you know, their voices that... That just, it was like, you know, really, really emotional. And, you know, we all finished that recording session. And I think everybody, producers, audio engineers, like every everybody on those. I've just been part of something incredibly special.
0: You know, I just like, I struggle to find, like, I think back just a few years, I really struggle to find where that hour conversation would ever have lived. You know, of course, maybe it's like an edited interview in in sort of like a fancy magazine, maybe. Yeah, it's very unique in, in, you know, in that way. But I feel like today there's just like so much, there's so much more space for that, you know? Um, and that's a very special moment. It's not to say that like all these other things are as special as that, you know, as mm-hmm. it dawns on me as you're explaining it, like, wow, okay, well,
2: mm-hmm. there's
0: some, there's some really, there's some great parts here about this this space here that's enabling something. No,
2: I really, I think so. I mean, now it sounds like you and I are on like the podcast council of America. Like, please everybody <laughs> enjoy podcasts. They're extremely special. Um, but I do think, I do think, think there's something to that and like certainly with you know with a conversation of that length and that kind of depth and intimacy like you certainly could do it on video, but then that also requires the viewer to be there, yeah. like watching it for, you know, an incredibly long stretch of time where we know that people listen to this while they were walking, while they were commuting. Although one of my favorite comments was that somebody posted that she was so moved by it that she had to get off her b- bike and walk because she didn't trust herself to be able to like safely ride a bike while listening to while listening to these words.
0: Um, One more question here on because of Anita Hill, I wanted to come back to the Kimberly Crenshaw um, point. Mm -hmm. Her point is really about the intersection, the the nature of why the intersectional thing is so important. It's because she wasn't just a woman and it's that she's not, I mean, it wasn't, she's not a black woman. It's that she's perceived as more of a woman than a black woman, I guess is the point, right?
2: Mm -hmm. Yep. Right. Well, and that in fact, you know she was portrayed by Clarence Thomas's defenders almost as she's like a stand-in for white women because his the, the thing that Kimberly Crenshaw for right. people who haven't listened to because of Anita yet or or don't remember the moment um, the thing that Kimberly Crenshaw is talking about in that episode is Clarence Thomas's decision to use the line the phrase high-tech lynching to describe what he feels is happening to him. And he says, you know, this is a terrible thing. And and by the way, Jane Mayer from The New Yorker, also a guest on the podcast, talks about how Clarence Thomas's supporters were very worried at that point in the hearing because they felt he wasn't getting angry enough and they really wanted him to get angry. And so he did, finally, in defending himself and said that he felt he was a victim of a high-tech lynching, quote, for uppity bla- blacks. And so... The impact of that phrase is that it, you know, it takes this this actual historical event, lynchings, and, um, you know, as as Kimberly Crenshaw puts it, it hijacks history because in reality, you know, lynchings were almost exclusively the the result of white people, typically white women, accusing black men of sexual misconduct or of rape. And as Kimberly Crenshaw says in the podcast, you know, never in the history of America has there been a black man who's been lynched because of the word of a black woman. And so in using this, you know, Clarence Thomas was able to hijack history onto his side, somehow erase the fact that an equally Horrifying aspect of the experience of Black Americans in this country has been the sexual abuse of Black women, which, as Professor Crenshaw says, has been a condition of their lives in this country for 400 years. You know, but because that's not popularly understood, and the sort of universal "quote Black" experience at that point in 1991 is understood to be the the male experience, he's able to kind of you know stand for. Black people in the public imagination, and she's kind of stripped of any, you know, agency. And there's nobody, I mean, Kimberly Crenshaw behind the scenes and other black women are, you know, standing up and saying, like, this doesn't make sense. Like, you you know, you're ignoring this whole aspect of black women's real lived experience in this country, which is that we are abused by men, by white men, by black men, by, you know, by many people. This is real. This happens. You know, you should you should recognize it. Um, But that's not sort of part of the popular dialogue at the time. Her her point is that, you know, intersectionality (laughs) obviously is more than, you know, it's more than a phrase on Instagram. It's more than, you know, a slogan. It's great that people are putting it on t-shirts right now. But, you know, this one very simple example of how America didn't understand this situation from an intersectional perspective not only affected Anita Hill's life, not only affected the Supreme Court, but you could argue also has created the sort of political world we're living in now. And, you know, and of course, the the America that's been so fundamentally shaped by Clarence Thomas's decisions on the court.
0: Yeah. it's. I mean, it's just like a, de- it's a devastating <laughs> point in realization. And it's just, I, I really hope people will listen to the podcast yeah. if they haven't, because there's there's just a lot of winding roads yeah. and, and realizations for the listener along the way that I, I think are super important. Let's talk about some of the upcoming things you're working on. One of them I know sort of started a while ago, but is you know, something you've been working on and is recently out. And I would like to talk to you about some of the upcoming stuff, um, Love and Struggle. Mm-hmm. which is, it was an event, right?
2: It was. Wanna,
0: I'd love to hear about just that little, like how an event becomes, and now it's like an Audible original, which I, I would still call a podcast, I think, even though maybe Audible would be mad at me. That's okay,
2: right? <laughs> I, I, so yeah. you, I, I'm not getting between that, you and Audible, but yeah. What's it's the a, evolution
0: of a, of a small event into a, into a sort of two-hour mini podcast?
2: Yeah, well, this is the, the work of um, a number of, Fantastic uh, creative folks in our collective. Um, Rebecca Carroll um, has been the curator, and Camila Forbes, who in her day job is the executive producer of the Apollo Theater, um, has been the executive producer both years. It started on the weekend, on Leap Year Weekend 2020. Um, So, you know, just like a heartbeat before the pandemic. And that's the weekend, obviously, that bridges February, which is Black History Month, and March, which is Women's History Month. And so um, Rebecca and Camila and a group of other fabulously creative um, women staged three nights of programming at the Minetta Lane Theater in partnership with Audible. And it was three nights of storytelling all produced by and from the perspectives of Black women. So... Um, Alicia Garza was part of it, Uh, Brittany Brittany Packnett Cunningham, um, the comedian Sasheer Zameda, a fantastic uh, harpist uh, trio, harp trio led by the harpist Brandi Younger. And Anita Hill was actually part of that. It was the first project that we had done, that the Meteor had done with her. Anyway, three nights of of storytelling and monologues and music and comedy on stage. And then Audible recorded it and released it as an audio special. And um, then this past spring, 2021, um, the team, same team, reprised it. But um without the without the live element because of the pandemic. But I think it lives in everybody's hearts and hopes that we uh we will be back to live soon. This year featured original work by the playwright Lynn Nottage, original work by the playwright Pearl Clegg, um, the comedian um and actor Francesca Ramsey did a really beautiful piece, the poet Jasmine Manns. It's just a it's a great it's a great thing that they've created and it sort of lives somewhere between, you know, journalism and and art. Um, it's really just a, a fantastic storytelling event um, that we're excited to grow.
0: Tell us about some of the storytelling you have you're, you're launching or thinking about launching or just a little preview as to what the Meteor's is doing in 2022.
2: Sure. Um, Well, we're about to launch season two of Brittany Packnett Cunningham's um, podcast, Undistracted, which we're really excited about. Um, Brittany's just a fantastic host. And so we're, you know, we're excited to keep growing that keep growing that show. I feel like I could listen to her talk for hours on end, and apparently I'm not the only one. So um, so that's that's something that we're excited about. Um, we last spring debuted something called, it was a summit called 21 for 21, which was 21 different sort of visionary, interesting thinkers who are working on different gender-related things in the world, sharing their visions for 2021 and beyond. So um, Amanda Gorman and Gloria Steinem um, wrote a poem together and um, the the MIT professor Joy Buolomini talked about the future of gender and technology, um, just like fantastically interesting connections between people and visions of the future. And so um, this coming spring, we're going to be um, bringing that back in live form um, we're calling it 22 for 22 for obvious oh, reasons. Gonna, okay, yeah. <laughs> You know, one of the things that happens a lot with, you know, women's issues and, you know, and gender issues in general is that they, they kind of tend to get like covered in a in a silo. And so one of the things that we're excited about doing is trying to create connections between different conversations. So like, you know, in this country, we're in the middle of this like huge SCOTUS-driven showdown around abortion rights, right, where, like, you know, it's quite likely that within the next, you know, nine months or so, we will see Roe v. Wade and, you know, the the, what freedoms, what reproductive freedoms still exist for women in this country effectively gutted. Um, You know, there's been and will continue to be and should be a lot of coverage of that. But What you often don't see is that, like, actually women in other countries, people in other countries are, you know, are fighting for a lot of the same rights. And sometimes with real success. I mean, abortion is being legalized in some Latin American countries where it's been illegal for years. And, you know, and yet, like, you don't really hear about that here. And it's such an interesting and important question. Like, well, what could we actually learn from those cultures? What can we learn from, like, looking at these, Mm. you know, looking at these issues across Culture. And then, how do you also make connections between issues in this country? Like sometimes, I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, the meteor we had said we were you know launching with live events and then you know the pandemic happened and suddenly we're like okay what else are we gonna do and so we very quickly stood up a 90 minute youtube program um, called night of solidarity which was sparked by if you remember you know those those early months of quarantine we were seeing a lot of headlines about domestic violence and the rise in domestic violence as people were you know um, sometimes trapped at at home um, in situations that were unsafe. And so, you know, we decided, you know, let's do a program really exploring this issue, looking at like what is domestic violence, what can be done about it, you know, what are people's personal experiences and how do we use this moment to kind of shine a light on it. And I remember calling um, someone, I think it was a sponsor who I was trying to get to sign on to the project. And I remember he said, you know, like, everybody's really focused on COVID right now, you know, and and health questions, like, don't you think it would be better to leave this, meaning domestic violence, for another time? And, you know, I, I, of course, was like enraged and, you know, went back to my group meeting and I was like, guys, we have to blow this out of the water because we have to prove this loser wrong, um, which hopefully we did. But but, you know, that is like a very common way of seeing things that like we only yeah. have enough room in our brains for one subject at a time. And of course, like, you know, health issues and domestic violence are related, just like climate change and gender are related, just like racial justice and, you know, economic issues are related. Like all of these things have strands in one another. Anyway. 22 for 22 is on the horizon, and um, and we're excited about it. Looking forward to this spring for that.
0: Cindy Levy from The Meteor, it's been, it's been a great beginning. You all have a lot of great things coming up, I'm sure. Thank you for joining us on the Webby Podcast. It's been great to have you.
2: Thank you, David.
0: A very special thank you to Cindy for joining me on the Webby Podcast. We really encourage anyone listening to check out The Meteor and the important work they've produced. Learn more at wearethemeteor.com. You can reach me on social at dmdlikes. Our producer is Kate Mishkin. Our editorial lead is Jordana Jarrett. Our assistant producer is Haley Lewis. Music is Poddington Bear. Claire Graves is a dog. donor on hiatus. I'm your host, David Michelle Davies, and this is the Webby Podcast.